Testament. Last week we talked about David and Saul and the different responses to, to, to God's uh, Kadush Hashem to give him honor and glory that each one of those guys had. Saul had one way of doing or not doing Kadush Hashem, and David had a different way of doing it. And we talked about how because David was willing to hallow the name, and we, because he was willing to do that, he summoned uh, the bravery that was necessary uh, to take on a seemingly impossible challenge, fighting the giant Goliath to the death. He is not the right one. He is not in the right birth order of his siblings. He is too small. He is too young. He should not have been the one fighting this fight, but he's willing to do it because he wants to kadush Hashem. He wants to bring honor to God's name. We talked about the Lord's Prayer when, the, when Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, teach us to pray. The first thing he says is kadush Hashem, right? Bring honor to God's name. Hallow be thy name. Uh, and so we see David take off and do some amazing things, right? He's like this one king that, that is supposed to be awesome. He's, this, he's the one who has a heart after God's own heart, right? He does some awesome things in the beginning of his kingship. And there's this phrase, though, that we see in 1 Samuel 18. I told you we we're going to start in 2 Samuel. But back in 1 Samuel 18, verse 7, there's this, there's this line that says, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands, his ten thousands. So he gains this spectacular reputation. He's, he's just like, he is the top of the top. He is famous beyond famous because of his willingness to fight. Remember, because he's so small. Saul was head and shoulders above everyone else in Israel. So he was the biggest guy to be able to take on Goliath. And David is a pipsqueak. But because, because of that, difference and because he was willing to step up to to Goliath and because he slayed Goliath he is super famous and Saul gets jealous and he starts chasing David around and so David is he's always escaping and he's always at one point he's hiding in caves he's just hiding out in the hills in these caves and what we see here is that as long as David is in a cave when he's in a cave and is, he's afraid for his life, and things are not good. When he's in a cave, he is able to trust God when he's in a cave. But eventually, eventually, he, Saul is ousted. David comes in as God's, uh, as God's king over the Israelite nation, and he moves into the castle, so to speak. And if you know the bigger tale of David's life, you know that he makes this big, huge colossal mistake, right? And then it seems like he gets everything worked out, but his kids turn out pretty bad. But we'll see uh, if he actually gets everything worked out like we think. I, I don't think he actually does get everything worked out, but we're going to take a look. So today we're going to talk about the second half of David's life, his, his reign as king. And next week we're going to talk about his son Solomon and how, they, how those two play off each other because Solomon enters the scene in the back half, back half of David's life, and, and it matters how, how they engage with each other. So um, let's start in 2 Samuel chapter 11. There's going to be a lot of scripture that we're going to read today. We're going to put it up on the screen, uh, but follow along in your device or if you're at home um, watching the live stream, welcome, welcome as well, and we'd like you to follow along with us. Here's where it begins in chapter uh, 11, 2, 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring... 
at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Well, let's just hold that there for a minute. Let's leave that up. So first off, why did kings go to war in the spring? Well, is it because it's like football season? Like this is the season for war? <laughs> is this like March Madness? What is this? Wa- instead of watching the game, they go off to war or something like that. Is it like hunting season? No, it's just, it's just the most strategic time of the year that if you're going to have a fight with another nation, this is the time of year where it's not all wet and rainy and muddy and cold or scorching hot. This is the time of the year when you can actually move large groups of troops and all the machines of war like catapults and chariots and all that kind of stuff without getting stuck in the mud, all that kind of stuff, right? So it's the most effective time to do, to do that. It's not like, it's not like, this phrase is not like, oh, this is their hobby. That every spring they're just like, it's, oh, yes, let's go do this. Because we talked about this before. War is scary. It's not like they're just yearning to do this all the time. And it says that David stays home and he sends his general, Joab, with the army, which is really, really interesting because if you're tracking with us from the last couple of weeks, you can remember the story of David and Goliath, right? They're all up on the hill. Goliath's down there taunting them. And where is Saul? He's hiding in his tent, okay? He is the one who is supposed to lead the army, who's supposed to go out and engage and, and, and be, the, be the one who is leading. But, and they're supposed to follow his example. He's supposed to be William Wallace out front, which is actually a really good metaphor because, you know, the Scottish don't win in the end, even though you think they do because, you know, if you ever watch Braveheart. But um, if you remember, Saul should have been leading the army to victory and leading by example, but he's not. He's off hiding, letting others do the tough, dirty work. And here we see David... David is doing what Saul did. He's at home, and he sent the armies on ahead of him, and he's at home. So he is not where he is supposed to be. Guess what happens when you're not where you're supposed to be? Nothing good, right? Nothing good happens when you're not where you're supposed to be. I'm going to put that, put that slide up there where he's not, he's not where he's supposed to be. He's not where he's supposed to be. So then the next verse, in verse 2, it says this, One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Because remember, he's not where he's supposed to be. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers, messengers to her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. So, this is church. <laughs> You know, this is, we're going to read the Bible for what it is. I always think it's really funny when, when I honestly, I think it's, it's the point of hilarity for me at this point as, my, as many years as I've been a, a pastor where, where churches and Christians get mad about other books that people are reading. And I'm like, have you read your Bible? The stuff that's in here is just crazy. So all kinds of questions here, right? Like why is she taking a bath where everyone else can see her? And why is he looking, Right? Then it says, then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. 
So, and there's all kinds of scholarship here that's like, well, why does it include the line? I'm, not, I'm no expert here on monthly uncleanness here, but it's like she shouldn't be pregnant. Somehow she is pregnant. It's weird. So in verse 6, so David sent his word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. And it's like, the point is like, you would know if you were supposed, if you're where you're supposed to be, you'd know and you wouldn't be in this situation. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And you're like, what? Well, that's an idiom in Hebrew for, you know, you haven't seen your wife in a while. Maybe you want to go spend some time with her. Wink, wink. You know, that's what he's saying. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. So he didn't go down to his house. And the point there is like, if you read on, you discover uh, Uriah says, who am I to go home uh, and be with my wife when my brothers in arms are on the front lines putting their life on the line, fighting and dying? Who am I to go home and take a break and act like I'm not at war? In other words, Uriah is a man of honor. He's a man of honor. And so what we know here is David's trying to cover up the fact that Bathsheba got pregnant. It doesn't work. Uriah does the honorable thing. While David, on the other hand, does the dishonorable thing. And so if you read the rest of the story, David writes a letter to Joab. He writes a letter to his general and he gives it to Uriah. He gives it to Uriah to carry. And the letter says to Joab, put Uriah on the front lines where the fighting is worse and then back away and pull the line of soldiers away from him so that he will be killed. So it's not just that the, do this. He writes it in a letter and gives the letter, he gives the death warrant to the guy that he once killed. He says, go deliver your own death warrant to this guy. Back to the front lines. And so he dies. Problem solved for David, right? He, he brings Bathsheba into his household. She becomes his wife. No one's the wiser. No one's the wiser. Well, let's move on to the next story, though. The problem with this is that someone is wiser. And that, that someone is God. God saw all this mess. And so God has this guy named Nathan that God speaks through to his people. And Nathan comes to David and he tells him this story. This is in 2 Samuel 12, right at the beginning. And if you're following along in the story, it's on page 162. It says this, The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, Hey, David, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of, of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. And you're like, well, this is a sheep. That's weird. Well, I know, I've seen what some of you guys do with your dogs, so <laughs> not that weird. So verse 4, now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. And instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. You see what's going on here, right? You see the setup? You see what Nathan's doing to him? David's reaction here, when David reacts, he assumes that this story actually happened in real life. 
And I mean, it did happen in real life, but not with a sheep, right? The sheep is who? Bathsheba. It's not computing for David, though. David gives him this parable slash metaphor, right? But David thinks this story is something that actually took place with a lamb. He doesn't even let Nathan Nathan even finish the story, really. And we see this thing in David. Like, the way he reacts to this injustice, we see this thing in him that we actually love about him, but we know the backstory, so we're like, dude, that's dirty, that's wrong, you're going to get it. And we all love this thing, though, but that he stands up for the, to vindicate the oppressed, right? He stands up to vindicate the oppressed. We love that about him. This need to fight for the, for the underdog. And it's a good thing for him, but it's also a bad thing for him. It's going to come back to bite him a little because this need to vindicate the underdog is going to play out in why he wants to build the temple because that's also part of the story. But here's the deal. I would invite all of you to put yourself far enough into this story. To look at this with your own point of view with regards to this question, what is God's tone of voice as it's, as it's ushered through the prophet Nathan? What is God's tone of voice here? Let's see what happens next in verse 7. Think about the tone of, in God's voices as spoken through Nathan. Then Nathan said to David, these are the words of God, you, you are this man in the story that he just told you are the man this is what the lord the god of israel says i anointed you king over israel and i delivered you from the hand of saul i gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms i gave you all israel and judah and if all this had been too little i would have given you even more why did you despise the word of the lord by doing what is evil in his eyes you struck down uriah the hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And by the way, he doesn't like directly say it. What's missing from this? From this rebuke? I'll tell you what's missing. He doesn't, his words don't even mention the affair, really. It just says you took his wife as your own. But the reason, like, for whatever reason, that's not the grave sin. The grave sin is you struck down Uriah the Hittite. Now, we know this is the point at which David writes Psalm 51. Did you guys know that? Psalm 51 in your Bible. How many of you have read Psalm 51 before? If you haven't, I'll recite the most famous part from it. It's very famous. It has these words in there. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And when we read this, we're like, oh, yes. Let's leave that up there, Isaiah. We identify with this, right? Because we know the wrongs we've done in our lives. And we go, yes, he, he, he's repentant. He's doing a 180 here. So it must all turn out all right in the end. It's going to be okay. I mean, he blew it, but he gets it. But the question is, for me, does, does he really get it? Does he really change anything about him? And before we go any further, I want you to stop and think about this for a second. At the beginning of David's reign, does he care if he gets credit for anything? Does he care? 
No, he does not care if he gets credit for anything. He, when he kills Goliath, is he, he's interested in one thing, Kadush Hashem. This giant is, is down here taunting us and saying, your God means nothing. Nothing. You're up there giving sacrifices to him, but not one of you in his name will come down here and fight me. And David says, enough is enough. I can't believe all of you are saying that you believe in God and you're not going down here. No one talks about my God that way. I don't want any of the credit for myself. I'm going to go kill this guy and God will get the glory because it doesn't make sense that I should win. And if I do win, God will give, get all of, the, all of the, the, the honor that is due to him. He doesn't care about getting the credit for anything. And because of that, because he kadush Hashem's God's name, he is elevated by God because of that. Now, let's see what happened, what's different this time around. Remember, this next bit is about, this is about the same army. While he's at home and his army's off fighting, Joab is leading the army, the same commander that, that David sent uh, Uriah back to on the front lines and, and was killed. Those guys are still out fighting out there, and David is not there. He's not there. And this is what it says in verse 26. Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messengers to David saying, Hey man, I've fought your fight. I have fought against Rabbah and taken its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and totally capture it. Capture it. Otherwise, I'm going to take it and it'll be named after me. After me, Joab. So David's like, oh, so... David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked and captured it. David took the crown from their king's head and it was placed in his own head. It weighed a talent of gold. Uh, that's somewhere between probably 50 and 70 pounds. So he's like putting like, this is a huge, this is a crown, okay? This is like a bag of cement on your head. I don't even, like you probably wear it for a little while and then you put it down. I don't know. It weighed a talent of gold, and it was set with precious stones. David took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labor with saws and the iron picks, with iron picks and axes, and he made them work at brick making. David did this to all the Ammonite towns, and then he and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. He did this with all the Ammonite towns. So Joab says, David, you need to get over, the get over here with the rest of the guys where I'm going to take this city and you are not going to get any credit. I'm going to get all the credit as your general. Does this, is this like, is this like reminding you of anything? Saul, David kills Goliath and then David goes off fighting for Saul, winning all these victories while Saul's staying at home, not doing anything, not leading. He's just a figurehead. And now David's doing the same exact thing. And his general, Joab, says, what up, dude? I'm going to take all the credit, and I'm going to, in other words, maybe I'm going to be God's next anointed if you don't do what you're supposed to do. So, David, you need to get over here with the rest of the guys, or I'm going to take the city, and it's going to be named after me. When David was younger, he would have said, no big deal. You go do it. You do it and bring God the glory. But now David's motivation is not Kadush Hashem. His motivation is to bring glory and honor to his own name. And that part I mean, that last part in, the, in that sentence, the part about consigning them, consigning the Ammonites to labor with iron picks and axes, and he made them work at what? Brick making. Brick 
making. When's the last time we saw that? Egypt. Brick making is what the Hebrew people did when they were held captive as slaves in Egypt and forced to work day in and day out for 400 years as slaves. God literally told his people when he rescued them, remember this Exodus story. And this is what the Passover meal is all about that we celebrate before Easter. The Passover meal is literally a reenactment. Every item on the table represents something from the story of the Exodus so that they will never forget where they came from and not do what was done to them. God literally told his people to remember the Exodus story so they wouldn't do what was done to them. They're supposed to be different than all the people around them. Don't build your kingdom on the backs of other people as slaves. Lots of implications there, right? Even now. Even right now. David is starting to look a whole lot more like Pharaoh than Moses is what I want you to see. When there's, someone, when there's a king and there's someone who's a shepherd in these stories, who does God pick? He picks the shepherd. And David's starting to look more like a king and not like a shepherd. He wants a king that can act like a shepherd. And, and for some reason, he's failing at it. Did he get it? Did he make the right changes? Did he figure it all out? I don't see that in him fully, to be honest with you. I don't see him. He continues to display this thing in him where he needs to be vindicated as I'm the man, you know. And I wonder if how much of the guilt of what happened with Uriah is showing up when he arrives. He's like, he feels guilty. He didn't want to go there because he had Uriah killed on the front lines. And so he's like, okay, I'm going to have to. He's motivated by his guilt to go do this, even though Joab did most of the work. Joab did. He, he took the water supply, surrounded the city. He's cut it off. They have no chance. Joab could have done it with who he had. And he's like, but if you want, you know, he's kind of ticked, I think, that David hasn't been helping him. Now, in the next part of the story, David, David wants to build God a temple. And if you've been in church for a while, if you've been in church for like five minutes in your life, that's always talked about in a good way. Like David wanted to build this temple. Like it, it, it's this wonderful thing, right? But again, I want to examine David's motivation for why he wants to build God a temple. 2 Samuel 7 says this, After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. So what's his motivation for wanting to build God a temple? What is it? I'm in a house. God's in a tent. I'm in a house. God's in a tent. The ark of God is, is remaining in a tent. Now let's look at God's response. This is God's response in verse 6 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I haven't dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? Have I ever said that? So did God ever say he wanted a house? No. And that is God's point. David, did I ever ask anybody to build 
me a house out of cedar? In other words, what's, beyond, what's laying underneath that statement, that question is, yeah, it is a problem that you're living in a house of cedar and I'm living in a tent. But maybe my tent is not the issue. Maybe the problem, David, is that you've made your life all about you and not about me. You're forgetting Karush Hashem. Why would David even want to build a temple for his God? Is it for his God to be glorified? Or is it a status symbol for David so his subjects can see what he has done? Are you guys tracking with me there? In other words, David, for lack of a better way of putting it, he gets a lot wrong in his latter half of life. I mean, it looks like he's accomplishing things, but he gets a lot wrong. This is what I learned from David here in the last half of his life and from his son, Solomon, too. The hardest thing about receiving God's blessing is living in it. And once you have it, it's like, it's like power corrupts, right? All of a sudden, you think you've got it made, but then you start assigning the blessing. You're like, you think you did it under your power. This is what Paul in the New Testament calls the sins of the flesh. Thinking you can do it all on your own. That's what he means by that. We have this tendency to not live in blessing well. And what happens in, in David's life is everything falls apart. In fact, his son tries to kill him. And he's forced to run away and hide back in a cave. Which is where he started a long, long time ago. And I'm kind of like, why? Because I think when he's in a cave, when he has to rely on God, then he trusts God. We've asked that question before, though. Like, if you only trust God when you need him, if you only want to ask God for his help when you need him, as opposed to the other times, establishing a spiritual formed life, a spiritually formed life where you're able to commune with him on a daily basis where it's not just, oh, I need your help. Show up only when I need your help. But he'll force you back to that place or he'll draw you back to it. I would suggest to those of us in here who've been praying for God for all kinds of things, but one, one I often hear a lot of is like, if I just had more money, then it would be okay, right? Uh, God, help me with that so I don't have to worry about money. Money is not the, the, the root of your worry in life. If you were given like a million dollars right now, you would still worry about money. <laughs> Because it's, it's about trusting God all the time. Trusting God is all that matters. Trust Him. Kadush Hashem. Hallow the name. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Kadush Hashem. Bring honor to His name, whether you've been given a little or a lot, regardless of what He blesses you with. And then you have more, more than enough. More than enough. David seems to have missed that. And it's like, it's like having everything. He had everything for back then, right? He had everything. He had it all. But it wasn't enough. And he got lost in chasing all kinds of things. Now, there are a couple major implications. In a minute, I'm going to have you all like group together at your tables. If there's just a few of you at one table, get together with some other people and talk about this. We've talked about this in the stories of people in the past as we've been moving through this series like I just said, if crisis is the, when you're in crisis, if that's the only time that you're going to trust God, then God will try to bring you back to crisis. 
I'm not saying he wants bad things for you, but he's like, look, I, I'm going to be more, you're going to be more aware of me in those moments, so maybe you need more of those moments if that's all you're going to give me so that you can have a relationship with me because he loves you. He loves you and he wants you to have a relationship with him. I think we need to understand that. Like, if, if the only time I'm going to trust God is when I need something from him, then he's going he's, he's to make sure that I'm in, I'm in that position so that I'll trust him. I think we can learn that from David's life. He starts in caves and it's good, but it sours when he gets to the palace. It sours when he gets to the place where he thinks he has it all and it's not enough to satisfy him. There's only one thing that satisfies, and that's God. Truly and deeply. 